there was a new clock in the back. It said 22 hours and something, and it was counting down. So I took that as a cue that I could preach for 22 hours today. But then they stopped it, so I don't know what happened. We return again today to Acts 4, and we are delving into the question about God's sovereign allowance of persecution. If God is for His church, and if the church is the apple of Christ's eye, why does He allow the church and Christians to be persecuted? This is part three now uh, of a study. It's not a theoretical study. Um, It has application to our lives. Some of you face intense pushback or alienation for your faith, sometimes from family or co-workers or some other setting. Some of them are for religious reasons. Some are for secular reasons. Why does God allow you to go through what you're going through? Well, we've learned that persecution forces us to choose, to make a choice. Um, Will I move forward in my faith or will I cause this to turn back and follow no longer? Hebrews 10.39 says, those who shrink back, shrink back to the destruction of their souls. I remember when I came to Christ College, 18 years of age, within a year after my coming to Christ, I lost every last one of the friends I had had from high school and college. And I learned quickly, you follow Jesus of Nazareth, people will not walk with you. They will not encourage you. Our first two messages on persecution, we've seen that that God does work in special ways during times of persecution. Our main proposition, our central thesis here of this inspired text is that when God wills persecution for the church, it is because he is uniquely working, he is uniquely empowering his people, Uh, he gives extra grace during times where extra grace is needed. Persecution affords the church unique opportunities to witness to Jesus Christ powerfully in corridors of power, to prove our loyalty to Jesus Christ. Actually, if you go through persecution and you accept it, and you've been ostracized for the name of Christ, you come out the other side much more assured that you are a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings peace and assurance to your own mind and heart. It also is a time where you're uniquely empowered to speak and say things by the Spirit of God, and God uses you. It also uniquely causes the Word of God to spread more rapidly. You'd think that it wouldn't, but the harder Satan works to put the the light out, the more it actually spreads. And it's so, God can never be outsmarted. It's amazing how how evangelism works even more powerfully during times of persecution. Today, these lessons come into even sharper focus as we reach the culmination of this series on persecution. It's uh, Acts 4, 1 to 22. I'll read it again here for the third time. Luke writes... As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day... 
Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply, but When they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So just quickly recounting the context, Peter and John are two of the prominent apostles of the 12 of Jesus. Jesus chose the 12 personally, and uh, Peter and John are quite prominent. They're on their way to the temple during the time of the prayers where all the Jews would assemble the temple, but the Christians would uh, assemble in Solomon's portico typically, and they would have their public prayers together. They were entering near a gate called Beautiful. They saw this this man that was uh, begging. He was a lame man, and they healed him by the miraculous power of God in the name of Jesus. It was a momentous miracle. It was undeniable. It was public. It was instant. It was supernatural. It was not some psychological trick. It wasn't done with, you know, smoke and mirrors. It was right out in front of everybody. The lame man leaped up, he praised God, a crowd gathered, they were amazed, Peter preached Jesus to them as Messiah, he told them of the resurrection, the people continued praising God for the miracle, and they were happy about it, the people, but not the national Jewish leadership. They were jealous, they were indignant. So the passage informs us concerning three actions that the Jewish leadership took. First, and we covered this before, they arrested the apostles. They laid hands on them, put them in jail. That's in verses 1 through 4. They brought an impressive array of priestly leaders and temple police. They broke up the celebration. They broke up the teaching. They apprehended Peter and John. 
They held them until the next day. Jail was not for punishment. Jail was for holding. Second, they interrogated the apostles, and we covered this the last time we were in Acts. That's in verses 5 through 12. They examined them with questions. They're supposed to do this kind of a thing as the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. They asked particularly, what is the source of the power of the healing? Even the law of Moses told them to look into this kind of a thing. They also wanted to know who gave you the right to teach in the temple. Where do you get your right of teaching? They didn't believe that they had any right to teach. And the third action is what we come to today. They, ultimately, the action was they threatened the apostles. And we see that kind of building in verses 13 through 22. We're going to go through a number of phases here, but it all leads to the threatening of the apostles and actually threatening them quite severely. And that's in verses 13 through 22. So since this is a larger section here under our third point, we're going to break it down further into several phases here. The first phase if you focus on verses 13 and 14, is the Sanhedrin's initial reaction to Peter and John's testimony, their initial reaction. When Peter and John finished giving that bold presentation, how did they react to that? Focus back on verses 13 and 14. It says, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, you could see them stroking their beards and figuring this all out, right? They were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Maybe one person recognized that another, and they kind of came to a consensus. There's some 70 of them. Ah, we know who these guys are. These were two of the apostles, two of those disciples from that guy from Galilee. They look like Galileans. They must have been ones with Jesus. So they come to this recognition of this. Verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, that's the evidence right there in the courtroom, they had nothing to say in reply. Nothing to say. Silence, at first, was the initial reaction. We might say golden silence. It's good that they stayed quiet a little bit. You hope that they would learn something from it, but we find out they really didn't. Peter and John's testimony was so impressive. Why? Well, as they were looking at it, the first thing they were impressed with was the boldness. The boldness. Parisian is the Greek term that is used, boldness or freeness of speech. They didn't seem to be intimidated. They weren't swallowing their words. They weren't afraid. They were uninhibited, we would say. Luke, by recording this and making this little note, was indicating that the apostles, as they were speaking, they, as the Spirit had filled them, it kind of helps us to understand the mindset of the apostles as they're facing this very intimidating council. They were not intimidated. They knew that beyond the council they were viewing was a higher council. There was a higher authority. There was a greater power, and they knew that they were accountable to that greater power much more than they were accountable to the men that stood before them or sat in front of them on that day. They believed so much in the risen... Remember, they saw him ascended, right? They saw him going up. They never saw him sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, but they saw him leave the Mount of Olives. They saw that. They saw the empty tomb. They saw a resurrected Christ. They saw him in his glory. And they were so convinced by that that as intimidating as that counsel might be or might have been or usually was, it was not that way to them. They knew that they were accountable to a greater counsel, and they knew it was their responsibility to convict the counsel sitting in front of them for crucifying God's Messiah. They killed God's Savior, and they needed to be told that. 
Now, their testimony was also impressive because they were not educated men. Usually, someone who's used to doing something, they're used to studying, and they have all the answers, or at least they think they do. They have a comeback. They have a response. They have preparation. They've trained. They know words well. But when someone doesn't have that training and they're put in a difficult situation, they're usually like deer in the headlights. They're afraid. And they didn't see that. Now, the term uneducated does not mean that Peter did not know how to read and write. It's referring to education in the Jewish law. Get the context. This has to do with their letters, so to say, in formal education in the law of Moses, like their scribes. In other words, if you had the scribes come and testify, they would speak with eloquence and they would speak with knowledge. They'd be able to get into the minutia of Scripture and be able to debate something. But here are two guys who never had that kind of training. But here they were, woo, using the Scripture and being impressive. And that was something that gave this council a little bit of pause and silence. Dr. John MacArthur comments that two Galilean fishermen powerfully and successfully argued their case before the elite Jewish Supreme Court was shocking. And he's right. They were not trained by scribes. Who trained these two fishermen? Jesus. If they had your choice, I'd like to be trained by a scribe or by Jesus, who would you take? I'd take Jesus. How much superior was the school of Christ? Not just head knowledge, but how to take that and live that. That was the school of Christ. They emerged from the school of Jesus and held their diploma. And it wasn't a piece of paper. It was their faith properly informed and their heart properly trained for a lifetime of ministry and sacrifice for eternal things. Peter and John were speaking so boldly And as they were speaking boldly, you could just see the light bulbs turning on in the council. Where do they get this from? They're not trained. And then they recognized these two. These two were with Jesus. They had no formal rabbinic training, but they sounded like Jesus. They they talked like Jesus. And they remember Jesus. It's not that long ago when Jesus was there correcting them and preaching in their temple, Jesus would regularly and daily teach in the temple. And often no one was willing to touch Jesus. There were several times where the rulers wanted to get him and they wouldn't. In fact, when they came to arrest him way off in the Garden of Eden at night, I'm the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, at night, Jesus said to him, I was with you every single day in the temple and you didn't lay hands on me. But this hour in the power of darkness has been given to you. No, they they were afraid of Jesus. They remembered his authority and his power and how he had cleansed the temple more than one time, I believe. And here they were, two of the disciples sounding like Jesus. By the way, um, they said the same thing about Jesus. In John 7, it says, when it was now the midst of the feast, this is in Jerusalem, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach This is in John 7, and it says, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And then Jesus answered and said to them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do God's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Jesus said, the Father taught me, and then I taught my disciples. So these are two men that have the spirit of Jesus inside of them. They didn't need to learn to speak like the great orators of the day. 
They didn't need to be trained by the minutia of the scribes. Their eloquence, if we can call it that, was their spirit-given earnestness. It was their sincerity. You see someone speaking and, you know, they believe what they're saying. It was confidence in truth. You know, one of the problems that happens in churches through the years from generation to generation is they quit preaching and teaching in an authoritative manner. They get used to just sort of speculating and philosophizing and, and, and sharing rather than declaring what God has said. But when you see somebody that is so transfixed on truth and so convinced that it's true, they speak that way, you instantly see there's something different there. Maybe they don't get all the words right, but there's a power and an eloquence to that, and it comes from the Spirit of God. You don't need a course on the power of positive speaking to be a good evangelist. You don't don't need to know the keys to motivating your audience. Put that away and speak from the heart. You need passion, real Spirit-generated passion, not something that's manufactured. And that, I think, speaks with greater volume. I know when I'm listening to someone preach, I want to know, do they live it? Do they believe it? Where are they with that? How sincere are they with that? We're not trying to produce public orators here. You can master the art of elocution, and, 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 and you're not going to speak with power when it comes to the Word of God. We need men and women aflame with that desire and that, that logic and that passion that comes together, the truth of Scripture that's so logical, it grips the mind, and then put with a heart that believes it and loves it and delights in it, and then just go speak, just go speak, just get it out of you and go tell people. That's what we need. That's what the council witnessed that day, and they were dumbstruck. What's more, the healed man standing there, and it's conclusive evidence. So what are they going to say? Oh, well, that wasn't really a healing. No, there he is. It was a healing. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew this was a miracle. It was a buzz. It was a noteworthy miracle. They were talking about it everywhere. It was crystal clear. This wasn't magic. This was God. God healed him, and the people of God were rejoicing. There's no psychological tricks here where the symptoms will return tomorrow or next week or next month. Remember, this is not faith healing. Faith healing is trying to use the power of positive thinking to get people convinced they're okay, and that does have a limited power to it. This is God healing. Whether someone had a lot of faith or not didn't matter. It was the power of God. So there they are, and they have nothing to say in reply. I would have liked that moment. I would have enjoyed that moment. I would take a picture of that moment. That'd be good. You hope something good will come from that. Now, some have noted a little irony embedded in the text. The council, who had authority to punish the apostles, were afraid of punishing the apostles because of the people. But Peter and John, who had no authority, spoke with great authority. It was said of Polycarp, who was the disciple of John the Apostle, some one hundred and 30 or 40 years after this incident here in Acts, after this event, that when he was an old man and he was arrested and threatened with being burned to death for his Christian faith, martyrdom for his Christian faith by the Romans and the officials, he told his persecutors, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a moment, but God has an eternal fire that burns and is never quenched for eternity. He said, I'm not afraid of your fire. I'm afraid of God's fire. 
Behold how the powerful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ dispels our natural fears. We do have natural fears. We want to protect ourselves, but the Spirit of God overcomes fear. Even in the most fearful situation where your life is threatened, you might think sitting there, I could never have the courage to face martyrdom and fire or going to jail for my Christian faith. You don't know the power of God and the grace of God. It'll be there for you when you need it. God is so good, and you need to believe in Him. Persecution must be faced with boldness. That manifestation of boldness in the face of threat of punishment and even death is exactly why God has you in that pickle, in that bind, so that your face can be lifted up and you can look at people that are telling you, I'm taking this away from you. You're going to be denied this, and you can look at it and you can say, that does not move me. I know whom I have believed persuaded by him. I love him. Polycarp said, I've I've served him all these years. I will not blaspheme his name at the time of my death. This is the boldness that later, when they go out, when we get to the end of chapter 4, they actually prayed for, for all of the church. It says down in verse 29, if you want to peek down there, it says, and now, Lord, this is their prayer, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Please notice that they knew that that confidence and freeness of speech was not natural to them. They had to say, please grant that boldness to us. Same with us. If you're afraid, you have to say, God, grant that freedom and that boldness to me. Get on your knees, beg that God will use you because his power is there. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, having such a hope, he's talking about the Christian hope, the hope of heaven, the hope of resurrection, having such a hope, this kind of a hope, this great hope, we use great boldness in our speech, he said. Other people are like sharing this and sharing that, try this and try that. Paul said, here's the truth. <laughs> Why? Because we have a great hope, the best hope, superior hope. Last, uh, last Sunday was Stephanie's last Sunday with us. I remember earlier in our church history, she, she made a T-shirt for us. Maybe someone wants to do that again for the whole church. And on it, it said something like Hope Bible Church. And on the back, it said, you know, we have the best hope. <laughs> we have a good hope. And it's right. We can brag in our hope because it is the best hope that anybody has. That's what we have. All right. Now, the second phase in this arresting, in this uh, threatening stage is when they confer with one another. Focus on verses 15 to 17. It says, verse 15, but when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. So it shows you that they might have wanted to deny it, right? Let's get out of this by just denying it. Well, we can't do that. But so that it will not spread any further, there's their main concern, among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man. Notice how strong this is. Speak no longer to any man in this name. Wow, there's no, no wiggle room in there, is there? So they're stunned by the speech. They say, get these two men out of the room. But that was fairly typical procedure for Jewish court, by the way. They're allowed to have 
private, unhindered consultation with one another to share the wisdom. That even goes back to the Proverbs, let's share the wisdom, and that works if there are different wise men on the council, but if they're all fools, what are they going to be sharing? They're going to be sharing hard heart, and it's not going to work, right? Multitude of counselors, there's wisdom, unless all the counselors don't have any wisdom. (laughs) And there you are. Some have wondered, by the way, where Luke, who researched all of this very carefully, where did he get his inside information to know what they talked about when the doors were closed? And some have said, well, maybe it was Saul of Tarsus, who later would become who? Paul, right? Because remember, he was in hearty approval of putting Stephen, the Christian, to death. And and, uh, we have a testimony that he was trying to do harm to the name of Jesus. Might have been him. Might have been Nicodemus, who was on the ruling council of the Jews and came in John 3 and said, Rabbi... He said this to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you've come from God because no one could do these sign miracles that you do unless God is with him. And then Jesus said, I'm going to teach you about the new birth. You better be born again or you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Might have been one of those guys, but we don't know. But we do know this. The high priest was the one who usually presided over the council. And as they conferred, we get the gist of their conundrum. Main question, what are we going to do with them? (laughs) Oh, my. What are we going to do with this? Everyone knows there's been a miracle that's been done. We can't punish them. We can't deny the miracle. What are we going to do? Remember, it was not just a miracle. Everyone is abuzz about it. Noteworthy means it was renowned. It's from the Greek term uh, nostos. It was known. It was spreading. It was being talked about. It It was news. It was big news. It was front page news for them. But at the same time, they were very determined to just quash this movement didn't want it to spread anymore. It was already causing them problems. So much so, they felt they needed to confront it and arrest these apostles. They wanted that name Jesus just to die out. So, they decided, let's use the clout of our counsel and our reputation as the intimidation. This is how Satan works sometimes. He roars like a lion just to scare you but he has no real power. Let's intimidate the apostles into silence. Yes, that's what we shall do. This seemed like a great idea to them. Now, that's a tactic that I think would normally work. What would you do if there's 70 very renowned and distinguished men in front of you that everybody that you know, all your cousins and all your coworkers, they all talk about how great they are and how powerful they are and oh my, I heard of this person that had to stand before him and they ended up dead, you know, or something like that. And you've been trained from your youth that these are the leaders of the country and these men are the ones that are to be respected and you're standing in front of 70 of them and they want to know what's happened. So they think this is going to work. It would normally work. It was typical Jewish protocol, you know, to, 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 to warn the people that they thought were misbehaving the first time, threaten them, and then only take action later if it was needed mentioned before that they are going to take action. That action will come in Acts chapter 5, not in 4. And chapter 4 is the threat. Chapter 5, to show that the threat was not an empty threat, they carry through with it and they actually physically punish the apostles. And we'll get there. But this threat also reveals how hard-hearted they are. Look, if, if your whole goal in life is we're going to preserve what we have, we're right, they're wrong, this is all we're going to see. No matter how much evidence comes from the outside, they're still blind, right? You think if we just turn the light on brighter, they'll finally see. But if you're blind, a brighter light doesn't help. And these men are blind. 
They have rejected God's Messiah. They're going to continue to reject God's Messiah. They're religious men. They're supposed to know the Scriptures. They're supposed to be responding to the prophets. They can't get it. They're blind. They're, they're locked into their sin. There's a judicial hardening, I think, that's happened here from God's perspective as well. They cannot appreciate what God was doing in their day. How many of us wish we could live back in the day and see all of this stuff, right? They were there, and they couldn't appreciate it. So their response to the Word of God and a noteworthy miracle is, let's tell them to never talk again in this name that produced the miracle. (laughs) Woo! You need to know that some of the most evil men and women in our country today are religious people. You need to know that. Religious, bad religious people not only block themselves from the kingdom of God, they also prevent others from getting into the kingdom of God too. Jesus said as much. He spoke to the foul religious leaders of his day in Matthew 23, 15, and he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, that is a a convert to Judaism, And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's not very cordial language from the Lord. That's what they were doing. They were making their people twice as much sons of hell as themselves. Run. Do not walk. Run from bad religious people. Notice next, the third phase. And this is their decision. Put succinctly. In verse 18, very emphatically, and when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Pretty emphatic. They were ordered not to speak, not to preach or teach in Jesus' name ever again. They were ordered to do this. The highest Supreme Court giving an order to Peter and John. And it's an order. It's parangelo. It's, it's a verb that means ordered or commanded or directed. This comes with full authority. We're not giving you a suggestion. We're not giving you guidance. You do this whether you like it or not. No religious freedom in Jerusalem that day. It is significant that Luke uses this Greek term, ordered, because it is the exact same term that is used to describe Jesus' orders to those same apostles in Acts 10.42. Peter reveals there in Acts 10.42, and these are Peter's words, Jesus ordered us, ordered us, same word, to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, Jesus who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Wow. Jesus ordered them, preach to the people. And the Sanhedrin said, don't ever use the name again. So clear. Who are you going to obey? So clear. In fact... Flashing forward again to Acts 5 when they're summoned back to the council again. The words of the council is, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. I mean, they're called to the principal's office here, you know. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Yeah, that's what they did. I love these guys. 
And they, they went out and did exactly the opposite of what they were told to do. And they did it with vigor. Back then, believers had to be ordered to stop speaking about Jesus. Nowadays, with religious freedom, we have to be ordered to open our mouths and speak about Jesus. Isn't that sad? It's all about that name, Jesus. Jesus in Greek. They hated the name. Their hatred was deep towards this name. Paul, I mentioned this verse a minute ago, he reflected on his days as one of those unbelieving Pharisees. And he reflects back in his testimony. In Acts 26, 9, he's he's giving the way his mind was at this time, which sort of gives you the mindset of these people. He says, so then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how his mindset was. I'm going to do, I have to. If I'm going to be loyal to God, I have to be hostile towards all these people using the name Jesus. That's how misled he was. Beloved, it is the name Jesus we bless here today, yes? It is in the name of Jesus we do everything. I don't understand why people are talking about God in some generic sense. It's about Jesus who revealed God. They're putting away the crosses now. The Christian music is no longer even Christian. We can't even use the word Christ in it to describe our music anymore. It has to be family friendly. It has to be positive hits. I don't get that. It's Christ. It's his name. We're not embarrassed of his name. We're not ashamed of the gospel, are we? They are. They think by hiding the name, they're serving God and spreading the gospel. John 20, 31, it says, by believing in his name, we get life. Why would we deny the name? Acts 2, 38, it says, when we're baptized, we need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, his name, public Baptism, right? 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Paul's writing there in the introduction of that letter and he says, to you who are calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with everyone else who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus, we call on him, Christ, hear us, Christ, help us. And, and if they come up with another Jesus, we say, no, 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 not that Jesus. This Jesus, just so we're known. In Ephesians 5.20, it says, always give thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We love the name. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to work today in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm mowing my lawn today in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm washing those dishes in the name of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Now, don't get too weird on that. It's all done for Christ. And Peter healed the lame man in what? The name of Jesus, of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Let's make sure exactly who it was. He said, walk. And he walked. He leapt. And he danced. And Peter just finished telling them, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, he's standing here in good health. And you're telling us not to speak in that name? 
Little note on Christian apologetics, a little sidebar. All that the Jewish authorities had to do here to, to put out the name Jesus was just produce Jesus' dead body. Would have ended. Peter and John would have been said, he's raised from the dead. And the Sanhedrin would wheel out his body. Oh, no, he ain't. There he is. They couldn't put the movement out because they couldn't produce the body. The tomb was empty. Peter and John were the ones that ran down there. Remember, John was faster than Peter, and he got to the tomb first, and he peeked in, and Peter comes barging in, and he says, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? And he sees. They saw with their own eye. The tomb is empty. Then they saw him in person. How are they going to stay quiet about that? Imagine someone saying, I know you saw a dead man raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God, but I don't want you to ever talk about it again. (laughs) There's no way. There's no way. It's the craziest thing in the world. No, Jesus was raised, and that's, they knew it. They knew these guys, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to trust my eyeballs. We know what we've seen and heard. Verse 19 is the next phase, the fourth phase, and this is their response. And there's a lot to learn here. This is a powerful passage here. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we, in other words, on our part, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Those words, if you're hearing those words, you meditate on those words, those just inject courage into your body, don't they? They just, your little knees are shaking all over the place and all of a sudden you're like, no, no, look how these guys handle it. We, We can't stop speaking. That makes me courageous. I like that. The apostles put it back on the council. You're the council, we're not. Use your judgment about what's right in the situation. That's what you're supposed to do. I think they're being respectful here. We won't presume to question your judgment. We're not going to argue with you. You can decide whether it's right to obey God or men. You make your decision. But here's the thing. We can't stop speaking. You just need to know that. We, we can't. It's not, it's not we won't. It's we can't. Because we witnessed it. We saw it. We would be liars and we would be deceivers if we didn't open our mouths. Obviously, the council put the apostles in a very difficult position. That's what bad government does, by the way. It tells people, violate your religious conscience. I order you to do that. And when you see the government beginning to do that, you know that is wicked government. When human rulers usurp God's commands and God's instructions, they're out of line. They're not using their authority the way God intended them to use their authority. And that goes for anyone who has an authority. Parents, police officers, you have to use your authority righteously and well. When you do, it's God's authority. When you don't, you're usurping God's authority. Peter says, we can't stop speaking even with your authoritative statement. Can't. We are eyewitnesses. We speak of things we know. We know he rose from the dead. We know he's the king of Israel. I can't can't keep my mouth shut. Beloved, listen to me. Nobody has the right in this country, in this state, in this county, or whatever county you're in, to tell you You're not allowed to speak 
in the name of Jesus. Nobody has the right to do that. You do not have to obey that order. Pray for your opportunities, and when they come, and there's a threat from someone, don't you dare say it. Pray for boldness. Open your mouth. Pass out the literature. Invite them to church. Do what you do. Sometimes, keeping your mouth shut is a sin. I know sometimes when you open your mouth, it's a sin too. I've had that problem. We covered that in another sermon. I get that, okay? But sometimes, closing the mouth is sin. Ecclesiastes says that. It says there is a time to be silent and a time to speak, chapter 3, verse 7. Witnessing for Christ... Doing it, I mean, you don't want to do it all day long in your job, don't get me wrong. You don't want to shout it in the midst of a time where people are listening to a movie or something like that. I mean, be kind, be gentle, be reasonable and all of that, but speak. Mordecai reminded Esther of this in Esther 4.14 when he said, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. You remember what Jesus said? If you're ashamed of me and my words, if you are ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you when I come in glory with my father. That's the controlling thing in my heart. When people say, Pastor, what's your accountability? Honestly, that's the thing. One day, little Tommy going to be standing before almighty Jesus. What did you do? I want my decisions now to be like when I stand there. There. Do you know what I'm saying? Little tiny me in front of omnipotence. What did you do? I spoke. They didn't like me, Lord. They didn't like me at all. But I spoke. I hope that's true of you. Jeremiah, he was a prophet. He knew he had to speak. It says, Jeremiah 20, verse 9, if I say I will not remember God or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. That's why prophets spoke. (laughs) Peter and John wouldn't shut up either. John later would write in his first epistle in chapter 1, verse 3, what we've seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Peter said the same thing when he wrote later in his second letter in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's why we made it known. Some scholars have noted how similar the apostles' response to the Jewish council was with that of Socrates' response to the assembly of Athenian citizens who were examining him some 400 years prior to this date. Socrates' trial was famous among the ancients. It's quite possible Peter and John had heard about it, heard the story. Socrates was told that if he was caught teaching against the gods anymore or corrupting the youth, those were the charges against him, he could face the death penalty. And Socrates replied, if you say to me, Socrates, we will let you go free, but only on condition that you stop your questioning Then I will reply, men of Athens, I honor and love you, but I must obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I will never stop doing philosophy. 
Socrates testified that he didn't know what the truth was. He said, the only reason that I'm the wisest man in all of Athens is I've uncovered everyone else's foolishness. I know I'm a fool, but I know that, and that makes me wiser than them because they're fools and they don't know it. Peter and John knew the truth. How much greater our response to speak than his, yes? Peter and John stared truth in the face. A man who said, I am the truth. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking into the eyes of Christ and he says, I am the truth. The eternal lived among us. We know of him. We read of him. We have this book. We stay quiet. We want our little church, we stay quiet in our little hallways, in our little rooms. We don't want the message to get out. Come on, people. We got the greatest message. If Socrates could not be silent, how much more us? How much greater the revelation of God than the foolish philosophizing of men? Yesterday, Pastor Allen was teaching the Reformation class in our Gamma Bible Institute. And I happened to peek in right when the movie was showing Martin Luther's famous words before the diet at Worms. That doesn't, doesn't mean he ate worms, by the way. That was a council, okay? The diet of worms, 1521. This is some 1,500 years after the apostles, right? And they, he was put in a similar pickle by the Roman Catholic Church to recant his good teachings. And he was able to exclaim to that august and intimidating religious body, and I'll quote from Roland Banton's biography here, the the book called Here I Stand, quoting Luther's words, unless I am convinced by Scripture and by plain reason, for I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That's it. That's the example. In your weakness, stand there and let God work his power through that. Why are we talking about Martin Luther back in 1521? Because the power of God attended that man, and it's because of his testimony the gospel was reborn in the West, and there's an even Protestant and an evangelical movement and a church like Hope Bible, that church that exists because of a man like that that stood his ground for the gospel. He opened his mouth. He refused to recant. Husbands, parents, Government officials, even the Supreme Court of the United States that says they have the highest authority, none of them should be treated as having the highest authority. Do you hear me? They all have delegated authority. And when they command and use their authority to command you to violate the clear commands of God, That is your moment. That makes the will of God crystal clear. You remember the words of Peter and John. We must obey what? God rather than men. Romans 13 is true. Those who resist God-ordained governing authorities are opposing an authority that God has established and therefore are opposing God. But that is not an absolute command. 
That's why a text like this helps in balancing it out. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But when Caesar commands us not to give to God what is God's, we obey God, not Caesar. It's pretty simple. We just have to be ready for the consequences. James Montgomery Boyce, the great expositor from Philly, he wrote this in his commentary. The state has legitimate authority, as Paul wrote in Romans 13, but this does not mean that the state is autonomous. Human beings are given certain spheres of authority. There are many kinds of authority, but none is independent of God. All authority that has been given to someone or some group of people is from God. Hence, those who hold authority are responsible to God, who is the ultimate authority, he writes, continuing on. That is why we have to obey God whenever the two conflict. That is what Peter and John did. And because they obeyed God, they were used of God in launching a movement that has extended throughout the entire world, has transformed it, and is still with us today, centuries after the Jewish Sanhedrin passed away. That stood. The work of the Jews did not. If your spouse tells you, don't go to church, don't obey God, don't witness, you obey God rather than men. If your parents tell you, you're not allowed to do what God tells you to do, and it's got to be a clear command. Now, don't do, well, I don't really like doing that, so I'll just pretend it's God's command. You can't do it that way, okay? It's got to be a clear command of God. You obey God rather than men. God forbid that our government ever tells Christians, you have to acknowledge sexual perversion as legitimate because we can't do it. In the name of Jesus, we cannot do that. We would drag Jesus into that which the Bible calls abomination. We can't do it. Listen, God may have stuck you in a dark place where there's very little light because you're the light, and he wants you to speak, and you're afraid, and you're intimidated, and you you shouldn't be. There is the power of the Spirit of God that is there for you. There is the truth of the Scripture. There is the example of godly men that have gone before you. Don't be afraid. See how God can use you. He may direct you greatly as you take a stand for him somewhere. Don't be obnoxious. Be gentle. Be respectful. But be firm. Be bold. Be clear. Well, we come to the final phase of this threatening, and that's the threat proper. It's in verses 21 and 22, if you look at that. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened, for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Further threats, probably told them they're going to be flogged, Hard hearts, didn't learn anything. You could tell if someone's repentant by their fruits. If there's no fruit, they can say they're believing, they're repentant. If there's no action that follows through with that, you know they're not repentant. So they threaten. But threats, I should say neither threats nor bribes, work on men of God. If you're motivated from the heart to do the right thing, they cannot scare you and they cannot buy you off. You're going to do the right thing. That means you're a problem for them. And now they may have to get rid of you. But you shine your light and let God direct your life. I might lose my job. Fine. You willing to lose a job? Well, then we might have to sell our house. Okay. Now it's time to choose. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? 
You follow Jesus Christ? Because that's where we prove whether it's true saving faith or you shrink back and say, I can't anymore. I can't. I can't. It's too much cost. Should have counted your cost when you came to the cross in the first place. This time they released them. Sometimes that happens. No basis for which to punish them. The people continued to glorify God for the miracle. The people, the unsaved people were glorifying God because of this. The church still had respect and favor with the greater populace. The New Testament is not anti-Semitic. It's, it's revealing the sin of the leaders of Israel. The people still love this church. They, many of them were still turning to the Lord and listening to, the, listening to them and learning. Even actually later we'll go fast forward and many of the, the priests start coming to know the Lord as well. Luke is not anti-Semitic. The people still were rejoicing in all of this. 40 years old, older than that, probably, as we were told he was, not probably, he was, crippled from birth. They saw the sign miracle, their eyes Open, they said, well, what does the sign point to? And the answer is the sign points to the name Jesus, Messiah. If you're a Jew, believe in Jesus as Messiah. If you're a Gentile, believe in Jesus as Christ, King and Lord. It means the same thing. Peter had warned them there's salvation and no one else. But they threw away their salvation. They chose to confirm their souls in eternal death, some of them. And that's another reason why God allows persecution, to confirm the persecutors in eternal judgment and the lakes of, in the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 4 to 6, it soberly predicts that toward the end of the tribulation, this will happen. It says, then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things, listen, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it, period. God will use the persecution of the saints as confirmation that these people deserve the eternal judgment of God. And so God allows it for that reason as well to look to the very judgment day and realize that your persecution, the judge, he who judges the living and the dead will use that evidence that these were wicked people and deserve judgment. So you endure. Again, the words of Jesus to the church at Smyrna are there. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. Our God is good. We need one another to strengthen our knees and encourage our faith. Amen? Father, please take the words that are your words and press them on our hearts. Help us to be strong and to encourage one another. We're not isolated. We have a body of believers here. We're surrounded by many other evangelical churches, our brothers and sisters in the Gamma region, beyond in America and throughout the world, and many who have already been tested unto death and imprisonment. Help us to learn from them and help us to take our stand for what is right. For Christ's sake, we pray it.
Amen.